0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group LLC, a Chicago-based national consulting firm. On this episode of Gathering Ground, I was thrilled to talk to Ronnie Patrick, Director of the Division of Rehabilitation Services for the Illinois Department of Human Services, and artist Sandy Yee. We discussed Ronnie's experience at Access Living and the Department of Human Services and Sandy's experience as an artist and disability culture worker. Welcome to Gathering Ground, Ronnie and Sandy. So great to see you both.
1: Great to be here. so nice to be asked to be part of this.
0: Absolutely. And Sandy, I'm so happy to meet you and have you here with us today.
2: Thank you for having me here.
0: Oh, it's, it's going to be a great conversation. And let me just say something that we're working on a lot at Morton Group. As folks who work around racial equity, access, diversity and inclusion, it is something that we have to really be more intentional about. So we're always in a learning, you know, a learning mode here at uh, Morton Group, and I'm I'm so excited that we have this opportunity to talk with both of you, Ronnie. I've known for several, many, many years, actually, and um, Sandy. Happy to meet you as well. Let's start by talking and giving our listeners a little bit about how did you get here, right? How how is it that you've arrived here today? And Sandy, why don't we talk with you? Um, tell us about yourself and why you're sitting here right now.
2: So as an artist who focuses on disability experience as the narratives in art making, I like to create stories from a more visceral and sensorial experiences. So for example, I was making um, wearable items that myself could wear. I was born with two fingers and so that's start telling stories about what it means to have different bodies. And as I interact with people, what it means to have a conversation or to not have a conversation about disability. And my latest project um, that I've been working on was actually was Rami. Um, and so I like to think about when we make art, it's about um, self-representation, it's about shaping up, um, Uh, shaping up a story and also expanding people's imaginations about you know specific issues so for me it's about um, expanding the ideas of disability and um, expanding the possibilities of disability art and culture.
0: Well how did you get started And, and tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you came to Chicago we'd love to hear a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Um, I grew up in Taiwan. I came here as an exchange student in high school and um, I did not align myself to disability until um, age 25. So before then, I was just making art about some of my memories um, from childhood without recognizing that, hey, it's a disability experience. Um, I think many of us were told that, you know, you cannot talk about it or like um, you don't want to be any different from other people so you kind of like try to hide your disability and then try to be so-called normal. Um, And I began making art um, and running into disabled artists and disability studies scholars who talk about disability from a cultural, political and social Um, models Mm -hmm. instead of like just the medical or like, oh, you are all burdens of the society. I think that's a misconception that most people have about disabled people. Um, And um, I began making art about um, other people's disability experiences. Mm -hmm. And um, I do have a training in art therapy. Um, Right now, I teach um, as the assistant professor in the Department of Art Therapy and Counseling at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And um, in art therapy, you know, we do believe that making art is therapeutic. Um, But so many disabled artists um, experience um, not having critics or the art world appreciate the aesthetic quality of our art because they think, oh yeah, if you're working, if you're creating art about disability, it's art therapy, but uh-huh. it's actually more complicated than that. And not everything disabled people do has to be therapy. You know, you go to the gym, it's like you work out. It doesn't right. have to be just physical therapy, right? Um, so I, um, in my teaching, I work with students who um wanting to connect with disability community. But oftentimes, you know, the larger world tells them that, hey, these people need help. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to care relationships, sometimes it's really challenging for people to want to offer help, but then they don't know how to. Right. Um, so a part of my practice as an artist um, has to do with creating relationships and has to do with creating a community. Um, a couple years ago, I was um, the artist in residence at Access Living, and um, I began facilitating community-based workshops where consumers could come to not just for the advocacy programs, but also we make art and begin telling stories together.
0: Wonderful. Well, I wanna hear more about the storytelling, which as you know, of course, is very popular these days. And I think it's a great vehicle to get people um, to know what they don't know, particularly about communities that they're not a part of. And that to your, your point, they um, people may think of the disability community in some ways a burden. And, and I think the art piece, you know, I think that's one of the beauties of art um, that it can open up uh, different communities and, and ways of being seen. Um, so Ronnie, how are you doing? And how did you get to this spot today? Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Yes. I, um, well, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm the director over an employment program for people with disabilities, Division of Rehabilitation Services. And really the way that I got that is I um, met the secretary, the current secretary of human services um, by leading a protest at the, at the Thompson Center. I love it. <laughs> better way
0: to look for your next job
1: (laughs) I had no idea right and honestly I think it's like a huge um you know tip of the hat to the secretary of human services grace ho to bring in somebody who um you know brought in 200 people with disabilities and closed down a downtown government center in Chicago and asked and demanded um you know, the rights of people with disabilities. So, and then she's like, hey, you want to join my team? I'm going to be the secretary of human services, you know, well, years
2: later. <laughs> that is the
0: lovely and brilliant Grace Ho. And of <laughs> course it makes sense. Well, she knows you can organize.
1: <laughs> exactly, right? Well, and and so I um, just really focused in on um, how much I love um, the disabled community, kind of like what Sandy was talking about, you know, the community of people with disabilities. I have such a deep love for um, folks with disabilities and just want to stand up and assert the injustice and try to get justice and equity um, for people with disabilities. So using that as my north star, as they say, um, I've just, you know, made sure that i made career choices in nonprofits, and now I've joined government um, to um, fulfill that, that goal.
0: So where, where, did, where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I grew up in a town named North Liberty, Indiana, Southwest of uh, South Bend, Indiana. Hmm. The tallest structure is a water tower with the, with the town name, you know, North Liberty. And it was up to a thousand people that lived there at the time. I would, I like to kind of tease that it's, uh, the ratio of, of tavern to, to church was one to one. So we had a lot of, you know, people that believed in, uh, Christianity, particularly Protestant. And, um, and then also just had a lot of, you know, fun times on Saturday night too. Right. Um, and so, um, that's, you know, primarily white folks. So, my mom's an immigrant from Thailand. She came here in 1973 and she and my dad met um, during the uh, Vietnam conflict. So they um, lived together in Thailand. And then once my father came back to the United States, he um, asked her to to join um, her here in the uh, United States and she agreed. And I'm the oldest of four.
0: (laughs) And here you are. All right. right. We are all the better for both of you being here. Um, You both used to work at Access Living. Um, Sandy was an artist in residence in 2019. And you were at Access Living for for some time. Uh, How would you describe uh, the work that you did at Access Living?
1: Well, I was definitely service oriented and also focusing in on discrimination of people with disabilities. So, you know, my trajectory was around starting in fair housing enforcement for people with disabilities. Then we, I moved into uh, management as a, a leader of our youth work, um, which then we engaged with, um, you know, bringing in uh, young women with disabilities, uh, special education advocacy, And then I um, worked on a reorganization at Access Living, and we focused in then on our services. So anything that had to do with government reporting that was funded through, you know, services for individuals with people with disabilities, I became the the director over those independent living services. And then we created an advocacy um, arm, which then folks could um, focus in on community organizing and other kind of social, you know, uh, community pressure to, you know, enhance and sharpen that aspect of social change for people with disabilities.
0: Wonderful. And talk a little bit about what it was like and what do you mean, Sandy, when you say that you are a culture worker? What does that mean to you?
2: Um, yeah, so... Um, I think a lot of people think about art as like, oh, you're creating art to go into the museum, or it has to be beautiful enough or skillful enough. But um, the fact is like, a lot of disabled people do not get to have, um, do not have the access to quality art education. And as a result, people might feel like no. I only experienced experienced art in hospital when I was there. Um, and not just like, you know, disabled people have um, this experience of like, oh, you have to create beautiful art and this is what beautiful art looks like. Um, so what when I think about culture maker, it's like, you do not have to receive Um, specific trainings to be an artist, you're coming in, you're making things together with the community. And the focus is creating a culture, creating a community collectively. So when I think about um, culture maker, it Mm. means that, you know, we bring in our disability experiences. And it's like making a soup. You bring in different flavors and this pot of soup may smell different and from the other ones because you have different flavors and ingredients, and, um, but none of us are chefs or we went to mm-hmm. culinary schools, mm-hmm. uh, but when we gather together, we create a juice and we share the juice and I like to think that's what culture maker may taste like.
0: Okay. Nice. I like that analogy. So when we think about art, we think about organizing, how, if if it does, how does that work happen in the Department of Human Services in terms of what you're doing? Would you have an opportunity now, for instance, to work with Sandy still, or is that something that you're not doing as much in your current position running?
1: Yeah. Well, I think thanks to, you know, the leadership, you know, like leadership as I just believe that leadership really sets the tone, Absolutely. right? So I definitely have support through leadership to be able to engage with community. Community is our informants about what our direction is and um, the way that we would engage. We're hoping that we would make it much more robust in terms of art making, in terms of culture um, development and community development through the Department of Human Services. Um, you And know, in, in my... In my directorship, I really want to connect with people with disabilities directly and give them the resources to make decisions on their own. And so the way I engage with with Sandy is, you know, asking, you know, for her and other folks with disabilities to keep me honest, you know. And I remember actually one guy that I worked with at Excess Living, and I asked him, you know, do you think I'm doing a good job, and he goes, yeah, and I said, do you think I could do better, and he goes, yeah, <laughs> so love I, that. that's, that's what I want, you know, and so it's right. like Sandy and other folks, that's, you know, where the connection is. Okay, I love that, so
0: when we think about um, this topic overall, right, the history of, um, with regard to the disability community, it is clear that the disability community has absolutely been on the forefront of advocating for yourself, right? That's, and, and, and that of course is, uh, brings to mind the saying that I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase here, nothing for us without us. Uh, the idea that if it's gonna be for us, we're gonna be part of it. We're gonna be part of the decision-making. And it seems though that in terms of underrepresented groups, the disability community has done a much better job at that than many other groups. What what are some of the positives and challenges that have come out of a history of being on the front lines for yourself? Um, Sandy, I'm I'm gonna start with you. What do you think are some of those things that have worked well and some of the things that have been challenges when you think about the, the extraordinary history of the disability community?
2: So I got into disability rights because of Rani many years ago i was asking like hey i haven't seen you for a long time can i visit you and she said i'm gonna be in dc for a rally and i thought oh rally and my imagination was just oh people walking like parading you know and little did i know it was um adapt um protests. so it was like um three nights and four days and um, that was eye-opening. Um, growing up in Taiwan, I did not, um, I did not see much disability rights movement. I feel like I was quite disconnected. And even though indeed people were um, advocating and fighting um, in Taiwan for disability rights, but again, like there was such a disconnect that I just didn't put things together. And as an adult, um, attending these uh, Uh, protest, I got the first, I got firsthand experience um, seeing how things can be done and how far things have done already, but then there's still more work. And I think you know, outside of the United States, people may have this impression that, oh, US government is so generous. There is like the disability um, rights law, and then everything is like protected. And it's great with the internet that you can actually show people that, hey, you know, we're not that progressed yet. And people had to fight for access, basic access. And I think that, it actually encourage a lot of my colleagues in Taiwan to really really push their agenda forward as well and say that oh yeah we need to fight for it we cannot just wait for the government to be so-called nice and one thing I would like to point out is that um, the history of um, disability rights in the United States started from um, mostly white people physic- with people, people with physical disabilities And so there has been a critique that, hey, we need to really think about intersectional um, disability experiences. And um, so I think one of my biggest influence um, was from Since Invalid. It's a um, disability um, performance group. Um, A group of them started really pushing the ideas that disability isn't just like a singular Identity group, we have to consider how um, you know it's intersectional, and we cannot just talk about disability from the rights perspective.
0: Absolutely, I think when we do our work around racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, we are always talking about intersectional identities, right? This idea that that ha- needs to happen across the board in terms of how we look at and work with you know those of us who are underrepresented in a variety of ways, but we're just not one, we're not just part of one group, right? That's never the case. And so for you, uh, Renee, what do you think in terms of uh, some of the positives and challenges that have come out of the the history of the disability community?
1: Well, I definitely believe that, you know, there's a um, representation. So I think that just the fact that representation is important Um, it, you know, and that people notice, oh, well, it's not acceptable anymore to have disabled people unrepresented or in, in ways that is tokenized. So people know what the expectations are around getting disabled people in included. Um, I also, um, really love that people with disabilities um are able to do like leadership and have impact on policy making or just have um be you know be leaders and decision makers around how things should be so very much like you were talking about the nothing about us without us like it's starting to come true um but i think that some things that are lacking is very much like what sandy was talking about which is that intersectional identity so some folks with disabilities um Th- are, are not really recognizing that the equity component, race equity component, the you know um, gender, um, sexuality components that come with the experience of people with disabilities in terms of equity. So when we talk about equity for people with disabilities, sometimes leaders um, that are currently in charge don't really move forward the agenda of all people with disabilities of all sexual orientations and genders and races and um, nationalities. And um, that's something that has to really change.
0: Okay, we're gonna talk a little bit more about some action items we can um, all participate in. I, I just wanna share this very, very short and uh, story um, that it gives me some sense of what it must be like. Um, it gave me some sense, I should say, of what it must be like to um, have some mobility, you know, challenges. I I broke my ankle a number of years ago in three different places. Had to use crutches. However, what was really clear to me was trying to get from point A to point B was nightmarish. Um, I remember crawling out of my house one day because the 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 walkway had not been shoveled or iced, and I was so worried about falling. I mean, just being on those crutches, you know, you're leaning forward. Um, so I crawled to the to the car that I was getting in and then I was going actually downtown to the auditorium. The auditorium is a historic landmark building. They don't have to comply with ADA. And so when I got in the building, I said, you know, I had seats that were in the mezzanine. And they said, I said, is the, you know, what elevator should I take? Well, there's no elevator. You can go up 3 flights. You can take the stairs up 3 flights or you can go take the elevator up to 6 and come down 3 flights. That was the only way I could get to my, my seat. And it was so harrowing that by the time I got to my seat, my seats were actually at the front. So it's you know sort of on a diagonal, right? And not a diagonal, but it, it slopes down. And when I got to the very top and I looked down to where my seat was, and because I had just come up three flights of stairs, I, I just didn't have the wherewithal to even go to those seats. And I said, you know what, we're gonna sit right here. And anyone who comes, I'm sure will be happy to have my seats that are in the front row, but I'm not going down those stairs. I, I, it was just, and I thought, my God, this is the state of the world for so many people. And I'm, you know, I have nothing to complain about. I just got a taste of it, just a very brief taste of it. I mean, I was using crutches for about, I don't know, two or three months or something, but it just gave me, and then I started looking at things like the curbs and um, doorways, and it just really makes you, it gives you some understanding of what it must mean to generally not have access, physical access to the places that you are trying to get to. And um, I mean, I've seen a lot of that change. Um, However, when you, there's a different way um, that people are treated. and, And I think you started to talk a little bit about this, Sandy, for people who have disabilities that can be seen as opposed to folks. And we've done a lot of work in the developmental disability community and just very, treated very, very differently. This idea that you can't really have a disability unless I can see it, right? And having to, on occasion, having to explain that to people. Um, what's What's been your experience with that, Sandy?
2: Yeah, um, like I mentioned, I was born with my very apparent disabilities, two fingers, on, um, uh, two fingers and two toes, and um, so I think growing up, it's like, yes, it's so apparent. And um, sometimes people will just assume that because you have this um, disability on the outside, it means that you are pretty damaged on the inside as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's like one, I guess, assumption that people have. And then, but, but then on the other side, When I acquired uh, depression, I didn't know what to do with how to describe what's happening internally. And I remember Rani was telling me that, you know, it's riding the wave. It's like go surfing and you sometimes come up and sometimes go down. Um, So I, I feel like we a lot of time we don't have the language to articulate what it means to have disability because disability experiences can be so diverse and sometimes there are no words for it. And sometimes that when you have words for it, but then people don't know what to do. Like you said that, yeah, how do you tell people that this is what I'm experiencing and maybe depression happens to you like you know it changes on a daily basis and what you need today may not be something you need tomorrow so you're always like negotiating space and time and trying to create more room for yourself but then at the same time there the society expect us to prove yourself mm-hmm. demonstrate that you can still participate you can still contribute to the larger economy. Um, but what we really need is redefining what care means. Mm-hmm.
0: And Ronnie, how do you think we we get on that path of that of, of redefining what care needs? And and you know, I think in some cases people make assumptions, you know, as, as Sandy was saying about what people may need, um, particularly if they can see someone's disability, right? They may assume they need support in a particular way and they may not, um, how, how can we start to redefine care?
1: Well, I'm definitely not the expert on it, but I mean, from my perspective, um, you know, what you're doing, I would have to say, Mary, is something really important because it is about the, the dialogue and the conversation about, you know, just trying to get folks to think and critically um, and analyze and then you know, just draw in and adopt and evolve into ways that um, give us what that, the you know, what care means. And I mean, I don't know if you're alluding to this, Sandy, but I also pick up on like when you marry, but it's, you know, like self-care too. There is some, you know, balance around how we care for each other and then also how we care for ourselves. And what I think is connected around like disabled people who, you know, don't, use a wheelchair or whatever, you know, it is that makes us not, you know, have to prove our disability is also that part about um, believing people, like, when they say, like, kind of like when you were in that theater, and you're like, really, Um, I don't know what, you know, like, how you had to express yourself or like, where you are with your stress level but if I were in your shoes I probably would have been pretty like exasperated and oh, probably was. you know oh, and like how you would say it would be like I'm not moving like you know you'd be like like your voice would be all stressed out and stuff I could
0: believe it I like yeah. are you kidding me I just I was stunned
1: actually yeah. you know and so but just why why can't people say that quietly why do we have to get to that level? And like, can we get to a level where when someone says like in a really, you know, low tone and they're saying, this is where I'm at. And then people are like, okay, Mm -hmm. got it. So how can we accommodate you? You know, you don't need to bring in your doctor's note you know, stuff like that.
0: Exactly. And just make
1: it happen, you know.
0: Right. And I think COVID certainly for us at Morton Group really raised the issues around disability access to us in a very different way. I mean, the reality is there are things that we never thought about when we were in person because we didn't have to. And if you're really going to be accessible when you're doing things online, there are a number of things we have to put into place. And um, that is how it should be, right, to make sure that everyone who's participating, for instance, gets the, everyone gets the materials a couple of weeks in advance. We're going to make sure that, you know, we have it transcribed. We're going to make if we needed to have someone you know do sign language we would do that but and the way that we find out is we ask people up front we do a registration form that we didn't use before but it is the best way for us to hear from everyone individually and not to make some assumptions about what people will need and what they won't need because sometimes we start with the client partner leadership and this is not I think in any way intentional but you know our work around equity means that we've got to deal with the impact of intentions and some and we'll say do you know just from what you know about your team should we be thinking about some special accommodations or accommodations in any way no i think everything's that's not a problem and then we'll send out the form and we'll get a very different information and so it is a it is a lesson for us that we always have to ask and it becomes a lesson for the client partner that maybe you weren't being as inclusive as you thought you were, because I think, again, it's something that we have to just think about and we're really thinking about language. What is your What are your thoughts about how people use language um, in a particular way that is not necessarily taking into consideration a broader, if you will, broader group of uh, folks' abilities and, and access? Are those small kind of actions the way to start building, do you think, when when organizations are looking at language and language does matter. And I'll give you one other example. This happened to actually to Vince, uh, you know, the executive producer for the podcast and also project director from Wharton Group. We were doing a workshop in Washington, D.C. We were doing the group agreements. And I'm sure you know this group agreement, step up, step back. So here we are putting up the group agreements and we wrote that and um, you know, we're thinking we're doing something. <laughs> and so the, someone very kindly walks up to us after we've you know, had people move into groups or something and said, so I just want to say, she said, I just want to say that if you really want to be inclusive and you want to think about uh, the disability community, you really should be using make space, take space. You certainly should not be using step up, step back. And it was like, of course, we shouldn't be using that language. Of course, we know that, but we weren't living it. And I was so grateful to that person who came up and said that to us, because it would have been fine if she told us that out loud. I mean, we are always in a learning mode, and how can we do something better? However, she was so considerate and came up to us and just said, I just want to give you this you know, a little bit of a heads up here. And that is a story that we often tell about how we just have to be in the space of of really discovery and understanding how, again, not intentional, but we have to really deal with the impact of, of what we're doing. Do you find yourself having to quote unquote sort of check people on a regular basis? Because let me just say how I feel about doing it about race. Sometimes it's like, I just, it's just too much, right? It's just too much. And you all could have that same, you know, feeling around race as well. But I've just, it it's like today's not the day, <laughs> you know, somebody make it a pass today. What, how do you all handle those kinds of situations when it's around a disability?
1: Well, I just, I mean, I want to ask Sandy to, to explain it because honestly, I feel like she has a much <laughs> more kind approach usually in terms of like course correction, mm-hmm. um, around it. So I want to say that disabled people are very, you know, have a variety <laughs> of ways. And like, for me, I think, I, um, I've grown, I, you know, I've been doing this work for, you know, since the nineties and there's a lot of different ways that you can interrupt, you Mm -hmm. know, something that is unwelcoming and, and it could be a teachable moment. Right. And also I too, um, have been, you know, um, course corrected as well, because I think it also is an evolving, Absolutely. Just, you know, it's evolving discourse. What I really loved about what you said is that being open to have, you know, self discovery and being able to, um, you know, evolve around how you're doing things. But yeah. I mean, I'm interested in what Sandy has to say, because she just has such, I think these gentle, but also pointed techniques to, you know, get people on the right path. So I don't know what you would say, Sandy, to this.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Ronnie. Um. I can share a conversation I had with someone. So um, this person wanted to find out if my sister was also born with two fingers. So they were like, oh, so is your sister normal? Oh no. And so I was like, oh, do you mean that that she had five fingers? And yes, she does have five fingers. And this person quickly realized that, oh, shit. They caught themselves like, oh right, what am I talking about? I'm basically calling Sandy abnormal. And so my approach has been, I honestly find it exhausting to language police people all the time. Mm -hmm. So I do make sure that, you know, where do I wanna put my spoons in? So, Mm It's like, instead of um, going into like a conflict, like, no, you should not be using this word. It's shame on you. And sometimes like, it doesn't really help. I mean, it really depends on the context and the situation, but I oftentimes um, you know, kind of try and tease out the meaning. Like, what are we talking about? Um, For example, um, you were talking about creating accommodations, right? And um, it's exhausting for people to constantly be asking, "Oh, do you have ASL interpreters? Do you have um, captioning?" And so, uh, when I work with different organizations, like I ask them to think about, you know, let's not make all of these accommodations as add-on. Let's do it right at the beginning. Right. So, when you plan an event, you think about how much budget I'm putting into food, how much budget I'm putting into speakers' fee, how much budget I'm going to put into having a captioner. And so, you know, instead of letting people know that, hey, this is a special accommodation, right. you know, it's accommodations, it's access information. So, in that way, you teach, you also teach people that, hey, this is information about accessibility. And this really helps people thinking that, oh yeah, when I attend an event, this is already, you know, designed, integrated into the whole program. And people will feel very welcome, like, oh, well, you thought about it. Right. And this is also a marketing strategy that you you bring people in by, setting your place up by being inclusive mm-hmm. and also, you know, ask people to think about how you are creating a welcoming space, knowing that disability is so diverse and it is possible. It is true that you won't be able to, you know, like use the one size fits all. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And it is okay that there will be times you wouldn't be able to support everyone's needs, and that's just the reality that we face.
0: But but to try, right? Yeah, try And to make it, I love the point around, this is just what we do all the time and we have a program. Um, certainly one of the things when we're talking to folks about their equity work is when people say, well, we have a, a particular committee that works on that. and will say that that's important as you're you know shepherding the work forward but at some point we want the committee to be out of business because this is just a part of how you work, right this is just how you do your work it's not some appendage that we have you know we're just gonna have this hanging out here somewhere and oh we hope you all you know can get in at some point um the other piece that i love what you were saying about the budget because uh, we have a colleague at uh, at uh, Morton group who uh, often will say that, your budget is really a moral document. And it really clearly indicates what is important. And that is how we have some sense, right? Of, of what you hold uh, in, in high esteem and what you think is important. And so I, I just offer that in terms of what you were saying, Sandy, I think that's exactly what we can tell. You know, I remember years ago hearing, hearing Gloria Steinem say, well, if someone picked up my checkbook when people were writing checks, um, <laughs> that, um, they would be able to tell something about me, right? How I spend my money, what is important to me. And it's the same thing here. There's a reason why staff salaries are the highest in any organizational budget, right? And what else are we doing to support um, our, our team? And so, no, absolutely. The, the budget is a moral document. And it is, we're working toward this just being how we do business on a regular basis. And I think that's a, a wonderful way for folks to think about it. When you think about folks who say, you know, I wanna be an ally, what what can I do? We've given a few ideas and I appreciate what I say is, you know, sort of the graciousness, Sandy, to say that, you know, we can't always get to every single thing because it's in some ways it's not possible. You may not know, right? Um, And you try, but to really try to do that, what are the ways that you would suggest? Because here's the other thing, those of us who are from underrepresented communities don't wanna be in the role of always teaching someone something, right? We don't wanna do that. And I remember again, uh, I was, and this involves Gloria Steinem uh, and Roxanne Gay, right? The prolific author and writer was, they were having a conversation and someone stood up and said, this was a young white woman. And she said, I just, this is just for Roxanne, this question she said, it's not for you, Gloria, but I wanna know what can I do? What can I do? What actions can I take that will really be supportive of, you know, of black women and Roxanne Gay, you know, very serious said, have you ever heard of Google? I love it. Because we can't always, nor do we want to always be in the teacher, you know, um, mode, if you will. And that's, that's true, right? Google is a wonderful thing. You know, you can certainly start there. And we often talk about having fierce conversations, right? Really talking about what's important and doing it in a way that calls people in and doesn't call people out because when people are called out, they back into a corner and they're pretty much done. And and then we can't advance uh, these topics. So again, I'll come back to this question and actually stop talking this time and ask you what what do you think we should be thinking about when folks say, well, I'm just trying to be an ally um, because there are many different ways to be an ally. And I certainly know from doing some of the work around racial equity that people, you know, sometimes they don't quite make the mark. Ronnie, what would you? what
1: would you offer? Well, I, um, you know, it makes me think about the, you know, like what you pointed out about, you know, money, this that whole allowing that funding to be there. Mm-hmm. I do like what you pointed out, what, well, Roxanne's pointed out, which is do your own research, yes. right? Yes.
2: And, yeah. and
1: being considerate about how that impacts people when you're constantly like asking folks with disabilities about, you know, this thing or the right appropriate way to do this and that right because it does take away like what sandy talked about which is your spoons your energy to Mm -hmm. to deal with it so the things that you know you couldn't do is your own you know own research put your money where you know your mouth is in terms of you know supporting organizations like sins invalid had been mentioned but there's other organizations that are working on that writers you know there's tons of so many great art books um that are written, produced you know, by people with disabilities. And so just providing like those kind of funding and, and paying for and then reading and absorbing all of that labor and energy um, that people are putting into communicating about where we're at and what space we are taking up in, and then adopting that information. So those are some things that I um, would recommend For you, for you. And then, you know, just in terms of like being an organizational psychologist, getting your leadership on board, you know, getting, um, adopting principles, policies, values, uh, procedures that um, get your organization to propel and make it like an essential part of your organization's way of doing things so that, um, you know, you can, you know, be an ally and it can be like truly an alliance for people with disabilities that we feel you know, welcomed um, just without it being some sort of clunky medical thing, but it's like a beautiful um, integrated design, you know, to your organization. Um, It's so nice.
0: Absolutely. Sandy, what would you offer for that?
2: A few weeks ago, a audience asked after my presentation, can I also be a disability rights activist? And um, as an ally, mm-hmm. and I, my response was like, you know, you do the work. It's not like we chose to, I have to do an activist work because, yeah. you know, this is not like a fancy turn that you think, oh, when I put it out, it's like, ooh, I am doing something special. But it's like let's focus on you know making changes, and this is the you know, probably the only time I appreciate action items. You know, just following up with what we're saying that let's not do any more action items. Let's just have it done like right now. But um, it's like if you are going to museums or theaters, like what you experience, Mary, like check out like hey, are they representing disabled artists? Mm -hmm. their performers with disabilities get back to backstage and go on the stage and perform and are they supporting a more diverse way of portraying disability and um, are they paying disabled performers and artists because a lot of time people don't get paid and people assume that oh well you are just you know doing kind things and you are volunteering and speaking up for your community, but it's actually, it's work. Yeah, so I would say that you do not have to be you know, rich or you do not have to be talented to support disability, support disability community. If you do have money, yes, give your money <laughs> and think about little things that you can do paying attention to how is this space accessible? Are you seeing disabled people in this space and why aren't they here? And I think if you can begin asking these questions, make it as like a daily practice, kind of like meditating with this ableist environment and really check out like, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. Why are we making space? And I think that could be a place to start.
0: I, I like that, I mean, so again, it doesn't have to be something huge, which I think people sometimes think it's gotta be something grand. There are these small actions, small small things that you can do to be also just more conscious and, and conscientious, right? To ask, and this is something we talk about in equity work across the board, who's not at the table, right? Who can't even get in the room, really? And how do we make sure that everyone who wants to be in the space can be in the space when we were looking for for new space for our office a number of years ago, there's so many places that we just had to turn down because they only had stairs, they didn't have an elevator. And I mean, boy, people were willing to make all kinds of deals with us to take space too. And we're like, no, we can't really do that. We just can't do that. And so there, there are things that all of us can do to your point. And that's across any of this equity work and any of the inclusion work, right? It doesn't have to be some, you don't have to necessarily be at a march or, be out, you know, with a protest. There are ways that you can make these small, small changes and and awareness building awareness. I think is so critical, and we just have to do more and more of that. So, everyone, hold on for just a few moments. We'll be right back. You're listening to Gathering Ground. Everyone, thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast.com. That's Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast, all one word.com. We look forward to hearing from you. want to talk a little bit about what's coming next for you and how can folks support your your, um, work as an artist?
2: Thank you for asking. Um, I have been working with Access Living in a different capacity. Um, I'm one of the coordinators for Arts and Culture Project. Mm -hmm. And um, this past summer, we worked with an artist um, whose name is Anka Lo and we created beautiful um, wire sculptures in the shapes of um, organic forms or texts. So it's actually um, a collective, a community project being on display right now. And um, we focus on like mental health and knowing that you know a lot of people became more isolated because of COVID. And it's a huge impact to Uh, disability community. And so along the line with, you know, addressing mental health, we are working on a disability called disability portraiture project. And to answer your questions earlier, like, hey, how do people, you know, talk about like non apparent disabilities? And so I am actually having my students teaming up with community participants who self-identify as either disabled people or people who experience mental health issues and people come together as partners and they will be they will be making portraits of each other and they'll be collecting stories. And the plan is um, at the end of the semester, um, sometimes in December, we will have a showcase, and um, people will come and share stories with one another.
0: Is that open to the community? Yes. Okay. So we'll we'd love to uh, promote that. Help promote that. Yes, and please. And so you will give us uh, information on that. We will absolutely put it on our our website. This is going to you know run in October. However, uh, we will absolutely do that for December. We'd love to promote that. That would be wonderful. Yeah, and it sounds really exciting and. Um, as we, you know, it talked a little bit of, at the beginning, storytelling is very powerful and it's a way for us to learn about so many things that we may, ha- you know, we haven't experienced. So that that sounds really exciting. And what is going on in the ever evolving, always moving Department of Human Services that we should know about running?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, um, we are. Well, for the Department of Human Services, definitely, we're trying to help folks that are, you know, coming from the border from Venezuela Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're settling um, in a way that is helpful and comforting and kind. Um, And at the Division of Rehab Services, we're making sure that um, folks with disabilities who are coming um, from the border also get the, um, you know, that their needs met. Um, we did get awarded, my division to get awarded from the Department of Education, about $14 million to help um, the, the, some industries that pay people with disabilities less than minimum wage legally do that practice. And we'd like to partner with six of those agencies in the state um, to move away from that, um, that practice. And then also to get people with disabilities that are working um, for subminimum wages to be able to come and partner with Division of Rehab services, get in contact with our counselors so that they can get jobs that are minimum wage and above, and join other you know, organizations that will pay them for that work. Um, I'm looking for young people with disabilities to come and join our employment services so that they can um, get engaged with you know, education, higher education, um, get some credentials, apprenticeships, things like that, and get a job. So um, we're looking for 100,000 young people across the state of Illinois wow. to be part 100. of the state 100,000. That's my stretch goal for our division. So okay. we want to do that. And so um, that's coming up. Um, right. you know, Ernie, how do we
0: year. send people to you? How do we get folks to you?
1: Well, we, you can look for the division of rehab services on the internet. Um, I actually am going to have to get a phone number for you. So I don't know if we, if I can look that up real quick, but I can. Um,
0: no, we'll put me... it, you know what? We'll put it on the website. We'll put okay, it on the website. So you have an opportunity Great. to send it to us. Yeah. Perfect.
1: So I'll do that. But um, yeah. So just trying to bring in young people so that they can be talented, forceful leaders um, for the future of of all of us, really, and people with disabilities.
0: Absolutely. And over what period of time are you trying to get these numbers?
1: We're trying to get that through the through June of 2023.
0: Okay. Well, the clock is ticking. Let's let's go, y'all. Yeah. We, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do our part, and we will when we um, do the promotion for this this program. We'll have that information available as well. um, That is huge for young people to be able to do that. I just, you know, what crossed my mind um, as we were starting to think about, you know, access living and all that is um, the empowered beefies.
1: I know. And you know what, Mary, I um, showed the film to the leaders of the Division of Rehabilitation Services, and they were blown away. And how old is that film? It's like, Ooh, can you yeah,
0: tell people 16- tell people a little bit about it though?
1: Sure, yeah. So it's the Empowered Fifi's, Fee the uh, Beyond Disability, the Fifi Fee Fee stories, and um, it was funded from Chicago Foundation for Women and Beyond Media Education. Did that. Um, the Department of Employment in um, the federal government paid you know paid for it too. And we, it's a story, it's really like live, you know, young people with disabilities, young women with disabilities, interviewing people um, on the street and then comparing that to um, stats from, you know, the the Harris polls um, to see how people felt about having a disability and then what how having a disability impacted young, these young women and um, what they wanted to do with their lives. And um, I showed this film to uh, government leaders of the Division of Rehabilitation Services that are charged to partner with people with disabilities to live independently. And then I had um, the founder, one of the founders, um, the daughter of Susan Nessbaum, who found, he was a co-founder of the Empowered Fee Fee's with Taina Rodriguez. I had Taina come and then speak afterwards to kind of look back on the film and and also inform where she was as, as a disabled woman living in Chicago, grow, have grown up in Chicago and now working um, on immigrant issues um, in, for Jan Schakowsky. So everyone was like, wow, after that.
0: <laughs> it's still very relevant. It's yes. still very relevant. That's to be when you know it's good, right? Yes. I mean, it's it still, I mean, in some ways we wish it weren't, but it is still very relevant, absolutely. Well, this has been delightful and it has gone so quickly that we're probably gonna have to have you come back again for a part two. Um, and, and again, we wanna, we wanna make sure that we are, are talking about the work that you're doing. We're gonna uh, make sure that people know about the storytelling, know about the 100,000 young people that you need. And just wanna say thank you, thank you for all of the work you're doing and uh, for spending some time with us today on Gathering Ground. It's, it's been wonderful to um, have this opportunity to, to talk with both of you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And that
0: does it for another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time.